This episode is sponsored by Robin. Do you think being an orthopedic surgeon has gotten more risky? It could be because of anything, from the economy to compliance concerns. If your answer is yes, you're not alone. According to a recent survey from Robin Healthcare, nearly three out of four doctors say practicing today is more risky than it was just five years ago. It's no wonder, then, that a majority of doctors also say they're documenting more in their medical notes to protect themselves against malpractice claims, audits, and insurance denials. If that's what you're doing, you need to check out Robin. Robin does all the documentation for your patient visits and delivers notes and codes that help protect your practice. To discover how, visit robin.co slash orthobullets. That's robin.co slash orthobullets. This episode of the Orthobullets podcast will go over the topic of shoulder hemiarthroplasty from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. A shoulder hemiarthroplasty is a procedure in which the humeral articular surface is replaced with a stemmed humeral component. The most common indication is glenohumeral arthritis when the glenoid bone stock is inadequate for a total shoulder arthroplasty. Remember, a shoulder hemiarthroplasty is contraindicated in patients with a coracoacromial ligament deficiency. Now, let's get into the episode. Starting with indications, the indications for shoulder hemiarthroplasty is primary arthritis if the rotator cuff is deficient, glenoid bone stock is inadequate, or if the risk of glenoid loosening is high, such as in the case of young patients and active laborers. In the setting of rotator cuff arthropathy, Hemiarthroplasty is a better option than reverse total shoulder arthroplasty if able to achieve forward flexion greater than 90 degrees. Other indications for shoulder hemiarthroplasty include osteonecrosis without glenoid involvement and proximal humerus fractures, specifically three-part fractures with poor bone quality, four-part fractures, head-splitting fractures, and fracture with significant destruction of the articular surface. Contraindications include infection, neuropathic joints, an unmotivated patient, and coracoacromial ligament deficiency, as this provides a barrier to humeral head proximal migration in the case of a rotator cuff tear, and superior escape will occur if the coracoacromial ligament and rotator cuff are deficient. Moving on to outcomes of shoulder hemiarthroplasty, as far as rotator cuff deficiency, remember that the status of the rotator cuff is the most influential factor affecting postoperative function in shoulder hemiarthroplasty. For proximal humerus fractures, shoulder hemiarthroplasty provides excellent pain relief in a majority of patients. Keep in mind that outcome scores are inversely proportional to the patient's age and the time from injury to operation. As far as preoperative imaging, radiographs should include a true grassy AP view of the shoulder, which is taken 30 to 40 degrees oblique to the coronal plane of the body. As far as findings, this view will help determine the extent of degenerative joint disease as well as delineation of the fracture pattern. Another radiograph that's important to obtain includes an axillary view, and as far as findings, you should look for posterior wear of the glenoid, and this view also helps quantify displacement in cases of fracture. Moving on to CT scan, you should obtain a CT scan to determine glenoid version and glenoid bone stock. It's also useful if the fracture pattern is poorly understood after radiographic evaluation. Finally, MRI is useful for the evaluation of the rotator cuff. Now let's talk about surgical techniques of a shoulder hemiarthroplasty. The approach will be a deltopectoral approach, and as far as shaft preparation and prosthesis placement, as far as humeral head resection, start the osteotomy at the medial insertion line of the supraspinatus, then determine retroversion, implant height, and head size. 
In terms of retroversion, 30 degrees of retroversion is ideal. The lateral fin should be slightly posterior to the biceps groove. Excessive anteversion leads to risk of anterior dislocation, and excessive retroversion leads to risk of posterior dislocation. As far as implant height, the greater tuberosity should be 7 to 8 millimeters below the top of the prosthetic humeral head. This functions to maintain the cuff and the biceps tension and recreates the normal contour of the medial calcar. As far as the technique to achieve this, cement the prosthesis proud, and the distance from the top of the prosthesis head to the upper border of the pectoralis major should be 56 millimeters. In terms of head size, determine the size by using the radiograph of the contralateral shoulder or measuring the size of the native head removed earlier in the procedure. Remember that using too large of a head may, quote, overstuff the joint. In terms of fixation, a cemented prosthesis is the standard of care. This provides better quality of life, range of motion, and strength compared to an uncemented humeral component. As far as tuberosity reduction, remember that tuberosity migration is one of the most common causes of failure for fractures treated with hemiarthroplasty. As far as the technique, strict attention should be paid to securing the tuberosities to each other and to the shaft. Autogenous bone grafting from the excised humeral head will decrease the incidence of pull-off and improve healing rates. Finally, tuberosity reduction must be anatomic or it may lead to a deficit in rotation. Now, let's quickly talk about rehab. Early passive motion should be done until the fracture is healed and the duration is usually 6 to 8 weeks. Strengthening exercises can begin once the tuberosity has fully healed. Now, let's end this review session talking about some complications. We'll go over progressive glenoid arthrosis, tuberosity displacement slash malunion, joint overstuffing, and subcutaneous or anterosuperior escape. So starting with progressive glenoid arthrosis, this has an increased risk with young patients and active patients. Treatment should be conversion to total shoulder arthroplasty. As far as tuberosity displacement slash malunion, this is one of the most common complications of shoulder hemiarthroplasty when used to treat a fracture. The treatment will be repositioning of the tuberosity with bone grafting. Moving on to joint overstuffing, this may lead to stiffness as well as accelerated arthritis of the glenoid. Finally, as far as subcutaneous or anterosuperior escape, this occurs when both the rotator cuff and the coracoacromial arch are deficient. This has better outcomes with conversion to a reverse shoulder arthroplasty compared to an anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, an extended head hemiarthroplasty or rotator cuff tear arthroplasty head has what theoretic advantage when compared to a standard hemiarthroplasty? And the choices are one, improved superior stability, two, fixed fulcrum kinematics, three, creates a metal to bone articulation with the acromion, four, increased deltoid moment arm, and five, increased glenohumeral offset. The correct answer to this question is three, creates a metal-to-bone articulation with the acromion. So the theoretic advantage of a metal-to-bone articulation with the acromion is that there is a greater arch in which a smooth metal surface contacts the glenoid and acromion. This may improve pain and function, but no studies have evaluated this to date. One study showed results comparable to that of a standard hemiarthroplasty. There are no other biomechanical advantages. Moving on to the next question, a 60-year-old man has chronic shoulder pain and weakness. 
Radiographs show moderate glenohumeral arthritis and narrowing of the acromiohumeral distance. He is scheduled to undergo either hemiarthroplasty or total shoulder arthroplasty. His postoperative function will be most affected by which of the following factors? And the choices are 1. The integrity of the rotator cuff. 2. The integrity of the corcoacromial ligament. 3. The presence of glenoid wear. 4. The presence of an inferior head osteophyte. And 5. The extent of AC joint arthritis. The correct answer to this question is 1. The integrity of the rotator cuff. So with conventional arthroplasty, the functional outcomes are dependent on the integrity of the rotator cuff. Narrowing of the acromiohumeral distance indicates superior migration of the humeral head, which is often seen in cases of rotator cuff deficiency. Further imaging studies such as an MRI or CT arthrogram may be indicated to evaluate the status of the rotator cuff. If there is an irreparable rotator cuff tear, total shoulder arthroplasty is contraindicated. In that case, the treatment options include hemiarthroplasty with limited functional outcomes or more recently, reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Iannotti et al. evaluated the influence of several preoperative factors on the outcome of total shoulder arthroplasty and hemiarthroplasty. They performed concomitant rotator cuff repairs in 10% of the patients and found that repairable rotator cuff tears did not negatively affect the outcomes. Hetrich et al. reviewed the results of a large series of shoulder arthroplasty without glenoid resurfacing. They found the least functional improvements in those patients with rotator cuff arthropathy. And moving on to the final question, a 78-year-old female sustained a four-part proximal humerus fracture on her dominant side two days ago and undergoes a shoulder hemiarthroplasty. Intraoperatively, the lesser tuberosity reduction was difficult and placed too close to the greater tuberosity, which was anatomic. What postoperative problem is likely to result due to the position of the lesser tuberosity? And the choices are 1. External rotation deficit, 2. Internal rotation deficit, 3. Multidirectional instability, 4. Forward elevation weakness, and 5. Elbow flexion weakness. The correct answer to this question is 1. External rotation deficit. So placing the lesser tuberosity in a more lateral position will increase tension on the subscapularis and likely lead to a deficit in external rotation. Variable outcomes in the prosthetic reconstruction of four-part humerus fractures often can be attributed to inconsistent and non-anatomic tuberosity placement. Frankel et al. in 2001 examined the effects of tuberosity malposition in proximal humeral reconstruction after four-part fractures and found out that there was significant alteration in external rotation kinematics and torque requirements. Failure to properly position tuberosity fragments in the horizontal plane may result in insurmountable postoperative motion restriction. That's all for this review about shoulder hemiarthroplasty. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.